Why do you stay stuck when you know what to do? Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why do I stay stuck when I know what to do? I mean, I certainly have. I mean, I know what to eat. I know how to exercise. I know what kind of people to hang around. I know how to change my thinking. I know the benefits of meditating, reading. And yet, sometimes those things are hard to do. I think it's true for all of us. Got some questions that will deal with that. And we're going to take some uh, steps here to see what is it you need to do to break that cycle. Hey, got some great questions, got some good news, got some surprises I want to throw in here and got some resources for you as always. So stick around. We're going to have a blast in this edition of 48 Days Radio. After eight years and only making ten dollars to $20,000, is it time to stop? And somebody asked, do I have to start a second business to sell my art? Now that's kind of a takeoff from last week's topic, but I want to emphasize again, I want to kind of give a little more detail on that. Last week, we talked about, you know, how long do I have to starve trying to fulfill my passion before I stop and get a real job? Well, somebody asked, can I join the 48 Days Eagles before I'm well-established in my business? We had a big webinar this last week. A lot of new people joined us. Give you a little more detail on that. And then why do people fail to take action after they've been coached in what to do? So, those are some, we'll got, got more if we can get to them, but those, again, great questions. Thanks as always for shooting those into me. You can send your questions in or success stories to askdan at 48days.com. Now here's a quotation for today. This is what it says. I do not understand myself. I want to do what is right, but I do not do it. Instead, I do the very thing I hate. Where do you think it comes from? Who is it that said that? Well, it comes right out of the Bible. The Apostle Paul struggled with some of the things we're going to talk about today. That comes from Romans 7, 15. Again, it says, I do not understand myself. I want to do what is right, but I do not do it. Instead, I do the very thing I hate. Some of you may be thinking about that in terms of the work that you're doing. Not what you love, not what you know you could do, not what you want to do, not what your heart is calling you to do. You do the very thing you hate. Well, we want to give you some resources to move away from that. Here's a resource. If you go to 48days.com slash why, it's just an overview of why are you where you are? Free resource there. Just go to 48days.com slash why. Now, I got some good news here. A couple of things I want to share with you that kind of tie into some of the questions we're going to look at. What, what do you think the top 50 simple pleasures are that Americans love the most? I mean, this is a time when a lot of people are trying to figure out, not just overwhelmed with bad news, with the pandemic, with changes in work, companies that are no longer there. No, but what would you do to just enjoy a simple pleasure? I want to expand on this a little bit, but there were 2,000 Americans that were surveyed recently just to say what their top pleasure is. Now, you know, seeing flowers bloom or hearing music they love 
I mean, were some of the top ones. I'm not going to go through this whole list. There's 50 of them, but I'll give you a few just to start off here. The simple pleasures in life, listening to your favorite songs, a nice dinner, watching your favorite movie, finishing a really good book, doing exercise, seeing flowers and trees blossom, home cooking, golly, stunning views, going to the beach, not having to set an alarm in the weekend. What goes on? Think about that, though. It's healthy for you to think about the things that give you pleasure. Life is not just all hard task. There ought to be a whole lot of pleasures in your life. You know, check it out if you want. I'm sure it's easy to find a 50 simple pleasures in life. If you want to see the entire list, um, we had unlimited time. I'd go through that, but I'm not going to do that. But I want to give you another kind of insight based on a book that I'm reading right now. It's the book title is Becoming Supernatural. It's by Joe Dispenza. It's actually sent to me by a listener, uh, Jen McDonough, had the kindness to send me the book. It's phenomenal. It's deep, not an easy read. But Joe Dispenza, I don't know if you know that name, but he's been around a while. He had an accident at age 23. He was doing a triathlon in Palm Springs, California, and he was hit by a semi-truck. And I mean hit. It threw him a long ways. That accident left him with six broken vertebrae in his back. Now, he was told that he'd be in a full body cast for a year and that he would be disabled for his life. He would never walk again. But he decided to focus on philosophical inner healing rather than going through the surgeries that they proposed to him to try to fix his back. He laid in his stomach and he focused on what his mind was doing as a process of healing his body. Three months later, he walked out of the hospital, back in his feet. Now, it's a phenomenal story, but I want to give you just a snippet of something that was done more recently because he understands that connection between our mind and our body. He did an experiment at one of his workshops. He does workshops all over the place. In fact, I, I'm checking him out. He does some at Marco Island. You're fairly close to me, and I'm thinking about registering for one of those coming up. They're intense. They're week-long. If you've ever been to a Tony Robbins workshop or Brendan Bouchard, it's that elevated in some ways. So I need to make sure I'm up for the challenge if I'm going to do it. But, uh, there, I mean, he's current, and he's does workshops. This was done at a workshop a couple years ago. Before we had the pandemic or anything like that, so it's not related to that, but it has to do with increasing the power of our immune system. So they measured measured IgA. It's a protein marker. I won't go into all the neurophysiology of that, the things above my level of understanding, and just big terms I don't want to get out. But they measured this protein marker that you really can measure in your blood, and it indicates the strength of your immune system. So during the four-day workshop, he asked the study participants to move into an elevated emotional state just by thinking about love, joy, inspiration, or gratitude for nine to 10 minutes, three times a day. And the question was, and he didn't know, you know, could these participants really increase this protein marker simply by changing their emotional state? Well, the results were pretty astounding. The average IGA levels shot up by 49.5%. These test subjects had significant measurable 
biological changes without having any changes in their external environment. So by attaining just these states of elevated emotion, even for just a few days, their bodies started sending them a new message. It changed their biology. That means you may not need a pharmaceutical prescription or some other kind of substance to heal you or keep you healthy. You have the power already to recapture or keep your immune system strong. Something as simple as moving into an elevated state of joy, love, inspiration, or gratitude for five to 10 minutes a day can produce real measurable changes in your health and body. The implications of that are pretty profound. If you want to be healthy, it may not require external substances. It's something you can do yourself. Keep yourself healthy. Now, this is something, I mean, before I've read these studies, I mean, Joanne and I have done a lot of research in this area. I mean, Joanne was diagnosed with MS 20 years ago, multiple sclerosis. Now, some people with that, you know, are in a wheelchair in 30 days. Now, certainly it takes different kind of routes for people, and we don't know exactly what the options would have been for her, but we decided that we were going to focus on her staying healthy, not look for external solutions, but focus on her staying healthy. We've done some really intense things, and today you would never know that she has that. There are times when she has weakness in her right side, but you would never know in meeting her that she had anything wrong with her at all. And it is primarily because of the she's on no medications, but it's because of the things that she did along the lines of what I just shared here. Now, I want to encourage you to experiment in this area as well. What is it you could do to just change your emotional state that would increase your health or return you to health if you're struggling with something? Now, this is not a health podcast. I'm not an expert in that area, but these are simple things that we can do, any of us can do, All right, let me move on. Now, this is a follow-up to last week's podcast. I mean, last week, we titled it, How Long Should I Starve in My Passion Before Getting a Real Job Again? This is an ongoing issue, obviously. There's a whole lot of people who think, how can I move into this thing? We talk about passion. How can I really do something I love and yet survive financially? Well, Gina asked here, now I'm sharing this, not just to be repetitive from last week, because, but I want to take a little bit different approach to it based on what Gina is asking. She says, I own a small business that I love and enjoy and plan to continue as my day job. Last year, I started painting for fun and have amassed quite a collection. Do I have to start another business in order to sell my artwork? And if I do, can I keep it simple? Well, it's a little, I'm not sure what you're doing now, but if you're in your art, if you aren't making money, then it is not a business. I mean, that determines that by definition, a business is when people are giving you money for what it is you're doing. So if you're doing art, not making money, then it is not a business right now. So the question is, do you need to start another business besides doing your art? Well, no, not really. Because again, by itself, art, just the creating of something beautiful is not a business. Now, in the webinar that I did just this last week on how to use 15 hours to really start something significant on the side, we broke it down into four areas. You've heard me talk about this before, but just as a recap, if you're spending 15 hours a week on your business, I would recommend that you spend five hours creating your art in your case. 
So five hours, but you have to do work in other areas if you're going to, in fact, be able to call that a business. So three hours, I allow that for reading, studying, gather new knowledge. You may not even need that if you're an experienced artist. But then four hours working directly with clients and customers. That's where it starts being a business where people are giving you money. So you have to not just be creating art all the time. You have to stop. You have to get out and interact with people who are prospects, clients, and customers. And then three hours of that 15 where you're actually marketing What are you doing to communicate? What are you doing to get out, get your work in galleries or get signed up for shows that are coming up or street fairs or festivals or however you're going to show your art, you know, building a website, what is connecting with people in a community who would appreciate your art. I mean, years ago, I worked with a lady who we realized her art created kind of a peaceful, calming feeling for people when they saw it. Well, she started going to dental conventions how many other artists do you think showed up at a dental convention? None. But she sold it as a means of having something in their waiting rooms that would give people a, a feeling of calmness and peace. She knocked it out of the park because of her focused marketing approach to what she did. So, Gina, you you have to do, you know, you have to have a business if you're going to be able to make money from your art. So if you're doing the other components here that I'm describing, you can thrive as an artist. Again, the three books that I mentioned last week were Real Artists Don't Starve by Jeff Goins, The War of Art, Stephen Pressfield, and The Empowered Artist by Bob Baker. Those I'm going to keep those handy as three to recommend for these ongoing questions about art. But yes, you have to have a business. Art by itself is not a business. Just the creation of something is not a business. You can be uh, skilled as a sculptor, as a musician, any of those things we would consider art. And of course, anything you do really is your art, but there have to be the other components to make it a real business, not just the creation of what it is that you do. Well, Sharon says, Dan, I'm a beginning, this is another art kind of question. I'm a beginning uh, metalsmith. I make fairly simple pieces of jewelry. I'm in a large number of metalsmithing groups on Facebook, and I also am a paying member of several metalsmithing groups. I'm still learning about the techniques and uh, whatnot of being a metalsmith. I'm of the opinion that your Eagles group is for people who already have well-established skills in the field they want to pursue. And I don't feel that I fit that group at this time. How will I know that I'm ready to join? Well, Sharon, I appreciate your question. It's a legitimate question. We did just um, have a whole bunch of new people come in and join us. As a matter of fact, as I'm speaking here, we had the uh, had the webinar last Thursday, and it's not been yet a week as I'm recording this. We've had 123 new members join us. We welcome them, and and people represent all kinds of different businesses. Now, here's the thing. Coming into a group like the Eagles is not just for people who already are well-established in business. It's kind of the chicken and the egg, which comes first. We have a lot of people come in who are just kind of formulating ideas about what they want to do. But here's the deal. If you've you know, when, when, when you make a decision, you know, if you're listening to my podcast or you read my newsletters and you've never taken action beyond that, that is a decision. 
and that's okay. But you make those decisions and it defines what the next chapter of your life is going to look like. Now, here's the deal about starting your own business or growing your business. If it's just about information, you can figure that out on your own. I mean, there's a lot of information that's just free. There's no question about that. This is just the way it is. So why do we invite people into this community? Why do I join communities online? Because I know from my own experience, when I get involved in an event or in a coaching program or in a membership community, I'm not investing for the information. I'm getting access to other brains and talents to encourage me and hold me accountable. So when you're investing in the Eagles community, you're not just there to get information. You're investing in you know, having me and others as mentors, you're investing in having access to the community of people who will not only help guide you to grow your business, but they also support you and cheer you on. That's what happens in the community. So are we going to t- tell you, you know, what kind of a financial program to set up to track your business, you know, where to go for marketing? Yeah, there's all those kind of things that are readily available. But the primary thing, is the community and how they support each other and cheer each other on. As an example, with these new people that have just joined our community, we have now, and this developed just spontaneously in the group, a group that is called the Welcome Wing. Now, we're all about eagles, so this is like somebody that's going to come around and put their arm around your shoulder, the Welcome Wing. I love that, that they came up with that. And we have 15 members who are in a group, they're an organized group, who have taken responsibility to personally welcome anybody new that comes in, to talk to them, ask them what they want to do, what resources they need to have to help them, how to move them forward, introduce them that, tell them about their own experience. I mean, those are just volunteers, man. I love the fact that that just spontaneously developed in that group. That's the kind of group that it is where people are so eager to share your success and to spur you on. Well, I would recommend that you come and come and join us. And, and we don't require any kind of a contract. There's no long-term commitment. It's just simply month to month. But just, again, if you want to check it out, go to 48dayseagles.com. At any point, we don't close the doors. We don't have play a lot of games like that. It's always open. If the timing is right for you, we'd love to have you join us. And I want to give you another example of this kind of simple idea. Now, you know, you were talking here, sharing about, you know, making simple jewelry. I mean, I love those kind of things. Think about the simple kind of things that have come out of that. If it's a a pet rock or something just unusual that somebody did. But here's an idea that you'll recognize. Remember liquid paper? Now, I say remember because, my gosh, why would you need it today? But there was a secretary. Her name was Betty Nesmith. And she was sitting around in 1956, surrounded by buckets of white tempera paint. And guess what she was doing? She had empty nail polish bottles, handmade labels, and she was making this stuff that she called liquid paper. She was a single mom from Texas. She was broke. She got a job as a secretary at Texas Bank and Trust where she earned $300 a month. And she realized there was a challenge. They came out with these typewriters that could type really a lot faster, an electric typewriter. 
over the old manual ones, and she recognized that it was easy to make a mistake. Well, it was messy to try to erase that. And she would see people all around her trying to erase that. A lot of times they'd tear the paper. It was kind of a disaster. And she thought, you know, she also had interest in art, being an, being an artist, again, talking about artists. And she said, artists don't do that. Artists never correct by erasing. What they do, they just paint over the air. They paint over their mistakes. And she thought, why don't I do that as a secretary? So she mixed up this stuff put it in bottles, nail polish bottles that she would empty. Well, she started delivering that. Again, as a single mom, as a $300 a month secretary, she started providing that for people at the bank and it spread from there. Well, she grew that. Now, without going through all the details, she grew that because she kept surrounding herself with people who could give her the resources she needed and grew that and got their encouragement. People would cheer her on rather than people who would say, no, you can't do that. She sold that business in 1979 for $47.5 million. Now that would be $173 million today, plus getting royalties in every bottle sold for the next two decades. Now think about how simple that was. A simple problem, a simple solution, a lady who didn't have fancy business degrees, she was making $300 a month as a secretary, but she saw that need, created a solution, and went on from there. Now, the interesting thing is, if you think about that, what if she would have just held on to her idea? How popular do you think liquid paper is today? Now, she started this back in 1956, In 1951, the first computer for commercial use was introduced to the public. So we actually had an overlap there where people were starting to experiment with computers where if you make a mistake, I mean, you correct it before it's printed. It's a totally different process than printing it right into the paper with typewriters with the old ribbon like they used to have. So she was overlapping the development of new technology that would make her product totally obsolete. But she somehow used that, got that window of opportunity where she grew her business, sold it for $47.5 million in 1979, even though computers had been introduced in 1951. But soon after 1979, there was a pretty big swing to computers, even for secretaries and banks, where that would no longer even be applicable. Now, incidentally, if you uh, recognize her name was Betty Nesmith, all right? Her son's name was Michael Nesmith. Now, anybody old enough to recognize that name, Michael Nesmith? What do you think? I'll give you two seconds to remember. Who was Michael Nesmith? Here we come. Well, there you go. That was her son, the lady who developed liquid paper, single mom. Her son was Michael Nesmith. Lead singer of the Monkees. Hey, hey, we're the Monkees. Well, just an interesting little tidbit there, trivia tied to that story. But I love that idea of how liquid paper was developed. Blake says, 
I joined the Eagles a couple of days ago. My main question, I have a full-time employee gig, which I started in March selling training courses, courses, life insurance, et cetera, to financial institutions. I enjoy it so far. I've also been a financial advisor, self-employed for eight years, but never made more than ten dollars to $20,000. I want to add more income. I want to run my own business. I still operate the financial advisor business, but doing very little with that. Do I continue with the financial advisor role part-time or start new? Given eight years, maybe it's time to start or commit fully or start something new. I like to write one day. I'd like to write a book. I think on hockey or a new service gig. I like coaching, seeing people achieve their goals, et cetera. Blake. Well, I love the fact that you've listed a variety of things that you've done here. I think your financial advising business is on the bubble. However, with that, I don't think it's necessarily a fact that you need to just stop that because it hasn't been successful. When we say financial advisor, it's a tough kind of term, a title. A lot of people expect to get financial advice from their CPA or from their banker or from their investment advisor because there the financial advice is free. It only comes because you're going to open an account with a bank or the insurance guy is going to sell you a policy, or they're going to sell you some kind of a mutual fund or annuity or whatever stock investment, and the the commission comes on those things. So financial advice by itself is not a real profitable gig. I mean, if you are offering financial advice and just getting fee for services, that's a very different kind of thing. So the question is, if you're going to do that fee for services, then you can't just be working with people who are in financial trouble because they don't have any money. Can you attract candidates who would be your clients who have a high financial worth already and are going to pay you to sit down with you, you know, pay you $1,500, sit down for a couple hours and discuss where they are? Or are you going to attach yourself to products that can be sold where you make your commissions on the products? Those are really the two choices that you have if you're going to call yourself a financial advisor. So I think there's ways to expand what you're doing, but you're going to have to choose how are you going to do that so you can make that profitable. If not, if you are just doing financial advice to the people that you see at church who are struggling to make the mortgage, you know, then you might want to see it just as a ministry or service or as a hobby rather than something that's going to really create significant income for yourself. Don writes, I apologize for the broadness of this question, but I hope it might inspire some discussion on your various channels. As coaches, we do much to prepare those who are coaching to take action. We recommend books, give pep talks, send our students on journeys of self-discovery. They get really excited about this process and change of perspective. But then when push comes to shove and it's time to take real action, the student stumbles. I think it's a universal truth that it's easier to watch a motivational speaker than it is to make a few phone calls, write and send resumes, or polish a portfolio. Any tips for motivating people to get out there, put the self-affirmations down and go? As ever, thanks for your wisdom, Don. Well, Don, thanks for your your question. Now, I'm I'm going to I'm going to frame this as if we're talking to a new coach, just so I have something concrete. So, people who have been trained in what to do, and now they need to get clients. So, let's just go with that. I mean, I knew you you covered you know we could take anything 
as an example, people who have been coached and what to do, and now they're stuck. They don't know what to do. Well, we can go right back to that four step process to start with. Again, somebody cannot just be creating what it is that they do. They have to spend time learning new methods, new information, new knowledge. They have to spend time earning where they're working directly with clients or customers. Without that, it's not a real business. And then part of the time, we were three hours out of 15 that we recommend spending on communicating, marketing. So we have those four areas that are required. And the same thing is true no matter if somebody's trying to get a job a promotion, start a new business, expand a business, whatever, those principles really stay true. So what's holding you back? So let's take again this example of somebody who's a new coach. They're a new coach and they're looking for clients. What do you do? Well, you may notice that I don't do Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, Pinterest, (laughs) Snapchat, Clubhouse. I don't do any of those. I just do the podcast and a newsletter. Now, I'm active in our online community, obviously. I mean, that's different, but that's not social media. I don't do any of those things, but I do a podcast, newsletter, but on those, I'm extremely consistent. You know, I'm never, I never miss. I mean, I just, it's just a given. It's non-negotiable. It's not like, well, am I too busy this week to do a podcast? No, there may be other things that don't get done, but I've always do, always do a podcast. Started in December of 2006. So I'm approaching 15 years. I've never missed a week, never done a replay. I mean, it's just something that I do. That builds trust. That builds trust, credibility, and an ongoing influx of coaching requests. So there's that. So you have to figure out what is is it you're going to do? What is it you're going to do? We have a list of 48 things you can do for your marketing. We certainly don't expect you to do all of those, but you need to decide what are the three or four that I'm going to do and do those consistently. But if you are coaching, here are four kind of steps, four basic things you have to do. Number one, valuing yourself and your services. Number two, seeing yourself not only as a coach, but as a business owner and entrepreneur. Number three, selecting and marketing to a specific niche. And then number four, stepping into your target market fully to gain credibility and visibility in your field. Let me expand on those a little bit. So once you value yourself and your services, can you clarify what it is that are going to be the benefits of working with you? I mean, be careful about bartering or discounting your fees just to get client. Yes, you can become more competent as you coach, but you have to be confident that your coaching has real value from day one. Are your fees a match for your target audience? So I have a bumblebee package, an intentional life package, a voila package, I mean, real clear packages that people can engage with me in coaching. So if you are a coach, you have to have to do that. Now that's not enough, but that's one part. The second step, as I mentioned, was seeing yourself not only as a coach, but as a business owner and entrepreneur. That means having a dedicated workspace, a clean, effective website, coaching specific email address. It also means being responsive with clients, other professionals, referral partners. I mean, when you walk into a room, do others recognize you as a person who's trustworthy, competent, professional? We moved into a new house this last year, and the first room we worked on was 
the office. There was an office already established in the house. I completely redid it, but it was the first place we addressed because that is the most important room in the house for us and my fa- for me and my family because of what I do. So I worked with the designer who I had come in. We carefully selected colors. I wanted to know how the light was going to be coming in. We have lighting that I've added because I do a lot of things on Zoom and video. The artwork that's on the walls, everything was carefully selected because that's important. I don't just grab a chair and sit on a card table and start doing my work. No, I want to control the environment because I want to be, I want to feel like I'm a business owner, an entrepreneur. And then number three, selecting and marketing to a specific niche. You know, who is your target audience? Do you understand their issues and challenges? Do those people have the discretionary income to invest in themselves by hiring a coach? See, I could identify, you know, that somebody pretty typical for me is like a 46-year-old male, happily married, three kids, doing well, advanced degree, making $150,000 or more, respecting his profession, making advancements, but feels like there's something more. They're looking for a new season in life. There's something that hasn't been addressed yet. This is not fully the expression of my dream. That's my ideal candidate. I love working with people like that. And then number four, stepping into your target market fully to gain credibility and visibility in your field. That means you've got to get out there and let people know what it is you do. I mean, you can speak twice a month to groups. You can offer a three-hour workshop. You can be active in online forums, offer group coaching. You could contact 30 potential referral sources, comment on blog posts. I mean, there's so many things you can do to actually engage. You can write an article for your local newspaper, um, establish yourself as a center of influence. Now, what is it you're going to do? Now, when I started out, and people ask me about this a lot, you know, how did I start off full blast as a coach when I made that transition, decided to do that? Well, I have, I have, of course, a weekly podcast, weekly newsletter. I'm a guest frequently on podcasts. I speak at conferences. We have our online 48 Days Eagles community. But that wasn't true when I was brand new. As most of you know, I was teaching a Sunday school class. That grew and gave me the basis for what I do today. So I was doing that free weekly Sunday school class. Then it turned into a, a weekly seminar that we did on Monday nights because it grew uh, out of the space and time allotted as a Sunday school class. So I did that. There were eight modules that were repeated. People could come for free, and we recommended no matter when they came, they would come through all eight. So I just repeated those, went through those. So if I was talking about resumes or job search or negotiating salary, it didn't matter where I was, just keep coming and you'll get all eight eventually, and they can they can build on each other in that way. Because it was free, it was promoted every week in the Tennessee newspaper and the Nashville Business Journal. So I usually had 60 or 70 people that attend, attended that. And then I started that weekly newsletter with the 60, 67 people whose email addresses I had. I was writing a weekly column for the Nashville Business Journal. Local pastors were referring to me because of my leadership at the church that I was attending. My friend Dave Ramsey was promoting me on his brand new radio show. I wrote lessons for Lifeway for every quarter's release of Sunday school material that was delivered to over 400,000 participants. 
I mean, just, so those are some of the things that I was doing. I wasn't just coaching, hoping that somebody would show up and sit across from me where I could coach them. These are things I was doing that positioned me in the community, but also filled my schedule because I was getting out there and connecting with people. So that's what you have to do. I mean, and that's, you you have to make a decision. I'm going to do those things. We have a brand new lady in our coaching mastery program. Just a delight. I talked to her, helped clarify what her niche was going to be. She actually helps people complete their master's thesis or doctoral dissertation. A lot of people get stuck at that point. They've done the coursework, but they don't complete those projects that need to be completed to officially get their degree. Universities know that. So we determined that her best marketing was not to find those individuals one by one, but to go to the referral sources, the leaders in academic institutions, colleges and universities who knew the students who were struggling with that and could refer to her. That has proven to be extremely successful. By the time in in between when I talked to her and we actually got her enrolled in our program, she had established 10 clients, paying clients at one of her programs, one is at $3,000, one's at $5,000. It was kind of equally split. She had 10 paying clients before she ever actually started our program. That's what it takes. How did she get those? By picking up the phone and calling. She can identify through LinkedIn in this situation, through LinkedIn, the people who were in those positions, their retention agents, I forget what they're called, retention something. I mean, colleges have though because they know how important it is to keep people in the program and to have them move through all the requirements. But she was able to identify them. She would do a little bit of research, get a phone number, call them. If she didn't have a direct phone number, she'd call the universities and get that. And in doing that and making like 30 calls a day, she would book people absolutely without question. What if she had just put up a nice website? Well, that probably wouldn't have gotten her much of anything. As a matter of fact, she said that two of the 10 were people that she had in other ways that somehow seemed to find her. But the other, the eight were direct referrals, were referrals from those people who were influencers in those colleges and universities. That's what you have to do. I mean, you, you have to move beyond just knowing what to do. To create a plan, what are you going to do? If you're looking for a new job, you don't just don't just submit your resume online somewhere and hope somebody finds you. Identify the 10 or 20 companies that you would like to be a part of that you know you'd be a thrill to work there and you know you have skills that would benefit them. Contact them. Go through the three-point contact method that I lay out in 48 days. That still gets results. You know, speaking of which, somebody asked here, and I'll, um, let me just grab this and then I'm, I'm going to wrap up with this. But Steve says, I'm wondering what process you suggest in reaching out to potential employers in this post-COVID world. Is mailing physical letters to places of employment still a recommended method? Or since people are now more than ever working from home, do you suggest email, LinkedIn as a primary method? Perhaps you have a blog or post article on this somewhere. Well, it's it's changing in terms of how people are working, but the process really doesn't change. I mean, I still am going to recommend physical letters to places of employment, but if you know my job search strategy, it never ends with that. Then you do phone follow-up. Then you do, I mean, today you can just simply show up. 
I mean, a lot of companies, if they have a physical presence, you know, they're, they're coming back in again. It's a great time to do that. And you can drive around. I mean, just driving around, you're going to see signs. I mean, it's just amazing. Now hiring, now hiring, now hiring, you know, please apply. And companies that are saying, we can't get people to apply. And we know some, well, I, I won't go into that. We, we know some industries are really, really suffering right now. Think about how the police are recruiting right now. With all, all the negative news that we've had about police and this garbage about defunding the police and all, they can't get people to apply. They have people who are quitting in droves. I mean, we're going to have major, major challenges in that particular profession. If you have a heart for that, you're going to be able to get hired in a heartbeat. But just knowing places that you'd like to be involved and show up, is a pretty effective method right now. But that the process that I have laid out, mail your resume out, then do phone follow-up. I mean, that still is effective. Yes, you can use email, you could use LinkedIn, you can use any method that is available out there. You know, use all of those. Just be aggressive in what you're doing to reach out. There's no no boundaries for what you can do. And there are so many companies that are desperately looking for people that you're going to get welcome or response pretty much anywhere that you go at this point. Well, you know what? I've got other questions here. My gosh, I love the questions coming in. Thanks so much for those that you continue sending in. You can send those in too ask dan at 48days.com again real easy just shoot those in i love opening that magic mailbox feel honored to be able to participate in your life in this way to unpack the questions together hopefully in answering your question it'll help a whole lot of other people as well that tends to be the kind of questions that i like to choose on here thanks for those coming in you know we've had a great overview again today of the things that we need to do to to sell your art to get out there and get involved. You may be sitting on the next liquid paper idea. Just go ahead and develop that. Make sure that you're surrounding yourself with people who are going to cheer you on. That's what we do in the Eagles community. Check out our resource for today. It was 48days.com slash why. Figure out where you are, why you're there. And again, I'll end with our, with our quotation for today, which happens to be a verse. Romans 7.15 that says, I do not understand myself. I want to do what is right, but I do not do it. Instead, I do the very thing I hate. Well, don't get stuck there. If you recognize that's where you are today, don't be there tomorrow. Move into those things that you know what is right to do, but you haven't been doing it. That you know are going to improve your health, are going to increase your immune system. I go back and re-listen to the first part of this where I talked about those simple steps to change your mood, your emotions can increase your resistance to disease dramatically. Believe in those, do those things. So do the things that are right. Stop doing the things that you hate. We can do that. I know you can. Tell me your success stories. Share those with me. Again, thanks for being a listener, regular listener. Hey, thanks for sharing and reviewing the podcast. I appreciate that. Don't ask for that very specifically, but those reviews, certainly we enjoy seeing those, appreciate those, and the fact that you share this and pass it on to other people. That's how it's grown. That's We don't do fancy social media things, but people share the podcast because you think it'll help somebody else. We appreciate you doing that as well. And then thanks for being part of this growing community, whether you're in the Eagles yet or not, but part of this community where together we know we can, without a shadow of a doubt, find or create work that is 
meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. 